it's gone through its ebbs and flows. And right now it's just like a very expensive reality there for everybody. So do you feel like something can be done though to relieve some of the strain? I mean, obviously one of the big issues there is it's a, it's a small city. Mm-hmm. People don't realize how tiny it is. That's the thing. It's like Manhattan. It's like, are the prices ever going to go down in Manhattan? The last several times I've been there, I've stayed pretty close to the Tenderloin. Mm-hmm. You got Twitter HQ over here. You walk two blocks over onto, was that like Fifth yeah, Street right there? Yeah, you've got Fentanyl HQ right there. Literally yeah. people just like yeah. defecating in the street. street. Yeah, shooting up right in front of your eyes. Yeah. yeah, it's nuts. Is there any cause for optimism? Is there anything you think that can or well, should happen? Well, I was talking today and actually it was with, with Dr. Oz at headline of them and it was interesting he's he's full of all kinds of factoids and wisdom sure. but one of the things that he said that was quite stood out for me is that it costs forty five thousand dollars a year to take care of someone who's mm. homeless and only twelve thousand dollars a year if you actually put them in a home and so if like, you actually if give you them actually, a place to yeah, live create a place yeah. to live and and health care and stuff like that and so he was he was just saying that you know on some of these things that were once like really like partisan issues that people are starting to realize that like from a human perspective, but also from like a financial perspective yeah. that it doesn't make sense to be mean to people. And that sometimes if you take care of people a little bit, it ends up costing society less. One of the big reasons, and this is just an issue all over with people in terms of inclusion and other things. Yeah. Again, we both grew up in the Bay Area, so we were sort yeah. of like had it thrust yeah, upon yeah. us, which is <laughs> nice. Like it wasn't something yeah. you had to consider. But when you're living in San Francisco, even if you're a billionaire, you know, you walk from your office to the coffee shop and you see – a lot of homeless people totally. on the street. Yeah. So yeah. I would assume and hope that they would try to change something because they're being confronted with it. Yeah. And, you know, the, um, Mark Benioff, who owns Salesforce, yeah. and they built the huge Salesforce town. Yeah, yeah. These are issues that are important to him. And he's been putting his, his money and his, his wife have been putting their money into, you know, alleviating homelessness and, and working on addiction issues and stuff like that. So I think there is hope. You know, and especially in San Francisco, um, I don't know if there's the same awareness all throughout the whole country where you see these things that are kind of like the fentanyl crisis and the opioid crisis, which is one of the main sources of keeping people down. But, you know, one of the reasons I make music is, is I believe that people don't change when they hear ideas or hear statistics. They really change when they feel something different. And that's why I make the music that I do. And I hope that it inspires people to really look at those base issues of why it is that people are suffering, like why people feel so much division in the world and that lack of closeness and that loneliness ends up eating people mm-hmm. from the inside and they, they've succumbed to those, you know, either addiction or violence or, you know, the extremes of the dark side. I think you're able to, I don't, I don't know if sneak in is the right word, but if you compare your music to somebody who I love and respect a lot, but like Billy Bragg, for example. Yeah, I love Billy. You know, my first tour I ever did was with opening for Billy Bragg. I can't. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. He just seems like, just like the sweetest, awesomest yeah, dude. He is. He's been making punk or punk folk yeah. in that form for a while now. And it's mostly stuff that maybe preaching to the choir is on the right mm-hmm. term. But, yeah. you know, when you're making punk rock, people mm-hmm. who listen to punk rock are going to listen to yeah. music. Now you're making the, this, I don't know if pop music mm-hmm. is the right word, yeah. but it's certainly something you can dance to. Yeah. It's something that you can listen to and enjoy without being fully immersed in the lyrical content. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I, last week we put out this song called The Flower and every week they have the ads, you know, how many songs was your station added to the mm. playlist on? So it's like a big deal every Tuesday. Yeah. They announce it, you know. And so we entered the chart as one of the most, five most added songs in the hot AC genre. So the top of the chart was Sam Smith, then it was Ariana Grande, then it was Pink, and then it was yeah. me. That's weird. <laughs> you know? And I was like, yeah. I was like, I think I'm the only artist on here whose first record 
was a record. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like yeah, a yeah. Piece of vinyl. Who's old enough know. to remember yeah, yeah. before autotune. Yeah. And so that is the challenge is like, how do you, how do we make songs that are about issues of the heart? issues of the world and do it in a way that people can relate to it you know sometimes it's on and sometimes it makes it to the pop charts sometimes it doesn't but regardless we tour i think last year we did 140 150 shows and we're out all around the world all around the country just delivering what we do trying to bring optimism through music you have remained through at least spearhead configuration yeah. relentlessly optimistic yeah. it seems like yeah which seems to be harder and harder to come by these days i certainly get out of bed i look Mm -hmm. at the news yeah i don't i don't feel a lot of cause for it no i i mean you know i have this film that's just come out called stay human and that's the exact premise of the film it's like i know that there's this battle in the world between cynicism and optimism every day perhaps it's an eternal battle but it seems to be broiling more than ever right now and i know it because i feel it in myself every day you know and and i'm somebody who, who throughout my adult life have battled depression and anxiety and i wake up almost every night and i i can't sleep and and I'm either thinking about some kind of worry that's going on in my life or some kind of worry that's going on in the world. And I get so coiled into it that I can't function anymore. And one of the things that I've learned is like, if I can change my thoughts, I can change my feelings. If I can change my thoughts, I can change my feelings. It's kind of like my mantra when I get into that space. And I'm not really super good at it, you know, but if I am able to get to it before I get into this really dark spiral i'm able to sort of like head it off at the pass you know and if i go into that tunnel of darkness it's almost impossible to get out and i see it all around the country today i see people who are suffering from that exact thing they said they're like how do we get out of this mess that we're in and so much division and so much so much polarization and um in the film i meet people along the way in my travels who either have extraordinary relationships like a couple named Stephen Hope December in Atlanta who Steve is living with very advanced stages of ALS and his wife Hope who is just like the most tenacious her name is literally Hope her name is literally Hope it's too good yeah and the way that I the way that I found uh, out about them is that Hope was writing me on Twitter from this a Twitter address called Hope for Steve. And I thought it was like, sure. almost like a charity, like yeah, Hope yeah, for yeah. Steve, you know, turns out her name is actually Hope for Steve. And she, and she was saying, my husband has very advanced stages of ALS and he may never ever get to go to another concert again before he dies. So he'd love to come and see you play. And so I said, sure, come on out. I invited him down to this festival in Florida, the Wani festival, the huge jam band festival down there. And I invite them onto the side of the stage. And at this point, Steve can only communicate with his eyes and with his lips. He can't move anything else. He's, pretty far down yeah road, really yeah. far down his complete rigor in the rest of his body he's able to whisper very subtly and as we're on the i bring him on the side of the stage and i'm playing this song life is better with you and i look over and steve whips whispers into hope's ear he says i want to get up and dance and so with all of her strength her yeah. tiny little body she lifts his rigged body up out of the chair they have this beautiful slow dance in front of twenty thousand people who are now cheering and crying and like screaming for them and i look over and i'm crying and my wife is on the, on the side of the stage she's crying and and i'm like this is amazing and i asked steve afterwards i said i said what was this like for you and he goes you know yesterday i was at the festival i was kind of wheeling around in my wheelchair i'm living life very differently now i'm like i you know i used to be a hockey player very active and now i i i, I drool you know and my face doesn't work and and people don't know how to look at me and he said but after that moment i became Steve. And suddenly people were coming up to me going, Hey Steve, 
We're stoked you're here, Steve. Come have a beer with us, Steve. Come dance with us, Steve. Come hang out with us. And he said it was just like, like a, a life-changing moment for him just to be acknowledged in that way. And so um, after that, my wife, I said to my wife, let's do this for as many families as we possibly can. And so we created a nonprofit called Do It For The Love. And we bring people who are sick and dying and kids and adults who have special needs and wounded veterans to see any live concert in any city in the world. People just write to us and say, my sister has stage four breast cancer. She wants to, has always dreamed of seeing Garth Brooks and we get them to the concert. You used a story about a guy with ALS to talk about optimism. Uh, yeah. Somebody can look at that. He's going to have a mm -hmm. rough life, but yeah. you're able to see the good in that. And mm -hmm. and that gets back to, you said specifically change mm -hmm. thoughts. Yeah. Now changing, yeah. changing my thoughts doesn't mean necessarily compartmentalizing or mm -hmm. not paying attention to the bad things. Yeah. Not not tuning out the news channels. I think that's the opposite of optimism actually mm. is tuning out. And my, I've, I've got a friend, um, Bert Jacobs who owns life is good t-shirt company with his brother, John. And, and he calls it, I guess, pragmatic optimism. Yeah. Like, yeah, I don't believe like I'm going to go, okay. Today I'm gonna play. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to go play one-on-one -on -one with LeBron James today and I'm going to kick his ass. Yeah. I'm so optimistic, you know, it's not going to happen, but you might come out of it with like, a great connection or a conversation mm -hmm. after he picks you up off the floor after dunking on you, you know, and there might be something that comes from it. And that's the thing is like having that sense of like realism, that's, you know, an optimism that's based on reality. But if we, if we just totally succumb to cynicism and sarcasm and fear, we end up going down that spiral and we, and we end up becoming that in everything that we are. How closely do you think being a creative person is tied to depression? I think it's very close. I mean, almost every artist that I know, and especially musicians who are, you know, vocally and out vocal and outspoken about their life and their music or about things that are happening in the world come from difficult situations. And a, and a lot of the men musician I know had really challenging relationships with their fathers. Yeah. And and I was one of those people. My, my birth mother, I should say, is Irish, German, and Belgian. My birth father is African-American and Nottaway Indian. And I was uh, brought up it was adopted into the Franti family who were second generation immigrants from Finland. And they had two, three kids of their own. And you were adopted by the whitest people. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, um, and so I grew up in this mixed household and my father was an alcoholic. The adopted father. My adopted father. Yeah. And so I really wasn't close with him at all throughout my childhood. In fact, I ran away from home when I was 17 and I told him I wasn't going to come back unless he quit drinking. And, and, um, he actually did, but there was only a few months left in high school that I had. And then when I got out of high school, I just basically split, went to college, played basketball for a couple of years. And then I started a punk rock band and hit the road. When my dad turned 66, he had a stroke. And when he had a stroke, it was like being sick actually made him well it was like he blossomed into this really beautiful person who would who had, he made amends to all of us who he'd ever hurt in his life he was kind to strangers he who he helped other people with their addiction battles and he just blossomed this it was like a butterfly coming out of yeah. a cocoon after 66 years and one time i had lunch it was the only time i ever had lunch alone with my dad my whole life and i said dad it seems like you've really changed you know and i'm i just want you to know how much it means to me and he said you know son i haven't changed at all and it was kind of, when he said that, it was kind of like the trombone of disappointment went off in my head. I was like, <laughs> wah, wah, wah. you know, and he goes, what I mean by that is I've always felt this love. It's just that I could never show it before. Yeah. I was never able to like communicate it or show it or show up for it because I was so drunk all the time. And so that in itself gave me so much optimism that even things that you think are so 
impossible or situations or relationships or people that seem so far gone that there's a possibility for everybody to to change and that you have to create space and openness for that to happen. You said you ran off and started a punk band and you're you're in that world for a while. Obviously, that's a genre of music that deals with similar subject matter that you're dealing with, but Mm -hmm. in a very different way. When does that change really occur within you? When when do you become less raging against the machine and more celebratory? Well, you know, when I was uh, my first band, the Beatniks, we were signed to Alternative Tentacles, which is the Dead Kennedys label. label, And we were like this angry punk rock band and and uh, very political mm-hmm. and it was kind of like what you described before about punk rock it's like you see the same hundred kids in yep. the first four rows of the show and they're all pounding their fists in the air all they're going yeah you're right you're right the system is so fucked up yeah you're right you know and everybody behind that is like we don't get it you know mm-hmm. and a couple things happened to me along the way one time i was invited to play in prison in a prison and i had written songs about the prison industrial complex and how messed up the war on drugs was destroying the black community and all these things and I went and played in this prison and this guy came up to me afterwards and it was, it was Thanksgiving. And he goes, you know, Mike, I really appreciate you coming here. I'm so grateful for the music. I haven't heard music in 13 years and I've got a 35 year stretch I got to do. But, you know, I really would have loved to have heard a song about how much I miss my girlfriend and how much I miss my family on Thanksgiving or just to dance and celebrate. And so it really made me think about music in a different way. And the same thing when I went to Iraq in 2004 and I played music on the street for Iraqi families in the daytime and then I would go and play for U.S. soldiers at night and I wasn't there on any kind of USO mission or any military thing I just bought a ticket and flew there and these Iraqi families would take me to their homes where they hid during the bombings and they would show me how they would put blankets on their children and I was like why do you put blankets on your kids if a five-ton bunker buster bomb drops on your building what's a blanket going to do and they said because when these bombs go off anywhere in the neighborhood the glass shatters and it, it it all falls on us and so, like, to hear these, like, firsthand stories of how people survive these things. And then I, I sang this song. It says, we can bomb the world to pieces, but we can't bomb it into peace. And I thought, okay, these guys are going to really appreciate this. And I got the same response. He goes, how dare you sing a song about bombing and peace and yeah. these big kind of platitudes without – and your you're, and your country's bombing us. Like, what are you doing? And he was like, we want to hear songs that make us laugh and dance and cry and sing. This is a tough line to walk, right? Yeah. To continue to address these mm-hmm. issues in your music, but also provide a form of escapism. Yeah, yeah. I, wanna, I don't know if it's escapism. I, I feel like what music is, music is the sound of feelings. I remember being in fourth grade and I had a crush on this girl named Sally Pinkner. And there was no way I could go it's a home. good fourth grade crush name. <laughs> yeah, that is like the yeah, best. Yeah. There's no way I could go home and tell my parents. I've got a crush on Sally Pinkner. They would just be like, do your homework. But there was the radio. And so the radio, I would hear these songs and they would make me feel and give like voice to my emotions. And I think I really fell in love with music and from that experience of being a kid who grew up in this crazy mixed household, didn't really feel like I fit in there. And then there was alcoholism on top of it. And my medicine was the radio. You always felt like an outcast? I did, yeah. And I still I still do today. It's been the really the great battle in my life. I feel like somebody who has always tried to be the peaceman, you yeah. know, like I yeah. always I always wanted to like make sure that everyone felt okay, that everyone liked me, that every I didn't want to rock the boat. I don't want to but at the same time there's a burning desire to call out the injustice that I see in the world. And those things don't jive. There's an extra layer on that too, is, you know, always being the referee for other people who does that for yeah. you. I yeah. mean, you that's a source of a lot of strife. You're dealing yeah. with your own stuff. Yeah. 
because you're paying attention to everybody else. Yeah. And and it comes up in my relationship too with my wife. It's like, I don't want to, you know, like in my house, for example, if someone, when I was growing up as a kid, you break a window, it's like, go to the fucking hardware store, yeah. buy a window, fix the window before dad gets home and don't tell any, don't tell dad, anybody dad, that you did it. Because if you do, the whole house is going to go into a crazy alcoholic rage. And so those kinds of things, it's it's been a learning process with my wife of like, you know, be honest with me. What happened today? You know, what's going on in your life? What's hurting you? How are you feeling? You know, and, and not just covering up everything because you think like you don't want to rock the boat in the house. So that's been a real throughout my adult life. That's been a learning lesson for me. I have this issue with depression wherein I just completely withdraw. Mm-hmm. You know? That's me too. This is for me to figure yeah. out. Yeah. Once you're married, once you have mm-hmm. children, yeah. it changes the math quite a bit. Yeah. How do you work through that? Well, I'm, I mean, to be honest, I'm still working on sure. it. But I mean, and just an example of that is, you know, social media, if I comment on something that's happening in the new social media, people will, you know, write hurtful and hateful things, you know, and I'm like, I'm just trying to like call it the way I see it, you know, and in a kind way and way that gives opportunity for there to be growth. And then people start to blast me. And then I start to respond to those people and I'll stay mm. up all night, like writing responses. You feed and, the trolls. Yeah. Feed the trolls and the bots. Like some, yeah. of, them, some yeah. of them aren't even people, you know, so <laughs> they're having an argument with, with, a, with a piece of software in Russia. You know, it's been a learning lesson for me in the age of social media of how to like, I really hold space to express what I feel without succumbing to being a tribalist warrior there's a difference between like i i'm not i've never been crazy about the word diversity you know like Mm. acceptance of diversity and like because i feel it's still it's once again it just divides us into these little groups like oh you've got to accept these people for who they are i like variability as a better word Mm. we're all variations of human humans you know and and i feel like we we have more in common not necessarily based on our you know our skin color or our gender or our sexuality we have more in common based upon does, does somebody enjoy painting? Mm. You know, does somebody dig Jim Croce records? Does somebody, you know, like to, to be in nature or does somebody rather like myself spend more time in the city and urban environments, you know? And I, I think that that's one of the really great things of social media is that people do connect in those ways on, on those things. When you're growing up, when you're a teenager, when you first start writing poetry and, yeah. and music, everything is really earnest at first. Yeah. Then you go through the phase where you try to buck that right you try to try to buck cliches and i suspect that probably dovetails pretty nicely Mm -hmm. with the the punk rock phase as well again it just seems like a a a pretty big transition to be to really kind of lean all in on earnestness yeah you know there's a sweet spot between that sort of you know what is novel and what is really like cutting edge and 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 that in music like if you hit that sweet spot it feels really good to people it's it's like something that's really familiar but it has something new to it and that's the thing that makes pop music be so satisfying when people hear it it's like oh yeah that song it yeah. reminds me of something you know and i feel that sense of familiarity but it also sounds really new and i think that that's the the, the strive for me as somebody who's Really, I, I'm trying to present the same thing over and over again of like optimism, openness, authenticity, love, kindness. Like, how do we do that? And and I think you have to go into like the dark side a little bit. You have to talk about the opposite of that in order to let the shine actually be seen. You yeah. know, and if it's all shiny all the time, it doesn't show up. Some of the great music that I enjoy, I assume you enjoy as well, are the really dark ones. You yeah. Know? Leonard Cohen. Yeah. Joy Division. Yeah. yeah. Do you feel like 
you have that in you? I feel personally like when I go to those spaces that I start to live it too much, you know, yeah, and, in your own head. And I, I get in my own head and it's, yep. and it's I, I don't, I, I feel like I'm better when I'm trying to like cure that. You know, one of my favorite songs is, is Love Will Tear Us Apart. And mm-hmm. I, I just hear it as a love song, you know? Mm-hmm. I don't hear the will tear us apart again. I just hear it as this great love song with a killer beat that, that I want to dance to that inspires me. And But it's really, you know, it's about how love hurts. But he, he, he in that song, he was somehow able to make a way that makes me feel like the sense of healing from that hurt. Especially as somebody who deals with darkness yeah. on a personal level. You know, you've got, you've got your life, you've got your family. Yeah. <laughs> the world is yeah. falling apart around yeah. us. It's got to be hard sometimes to go out on stage and summon that energy and optimism and enthusiasm, um, as, especially since you're playing so many shows a year. You know, I, I don't really ever find it hard. I I feel like like my body gets tired sometimes and I get run down physically on the road, but I've never, ever lost my enthusiasm in, in 30 years of touring and playing music. And in fact, I was just talking to my bass player, Carl Young, earlier today, and we were just saying how this summer, you know, summer of 2018 was our favorite year of touring that we've mm-hmm. ever had in 25 years of being bandmates. And I think that part of that is just understanding better who I am as an individual and understanding and seeing the effect that my music can have on other people. And so far as for me as a musician, there's no greater joy than to walk out on the stage and you see like you're at Red Rocks and there's 10,000 people and yeah. it's like the holy grail of music. And you go out there and everyone walks in carrying their whole life, like everything that's led up to that moment. And they're there and you see people just from the first beat start to melt and they start to dance and they start to loosen up and they hug their best friend and they high five a stranger and they take a drink off their beer a hit off their bong and they pass it to somebody else and now they're singing in unison and they're singing these ideas that are important to them and have meaning and 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 a shared sense of values between the crowd and the band and people then walk out of there feeling the sense of transformation and i'm like what politician can do that every night you know like and if you can if you could like i would vote for you you know but music has that thing like like i said before it's it's the sound of feelings you know and so when you put your heart into it you you kind of get that back you know it's kind of like the more you give of yourself the more you get in return and and i mean in a you know not in ticket sales but in just a gratification way of how you feel so why was it important to marry yoga and touring i first started practicing yoga on september 12 2001 so the day after 9 11 and i walked into a yoga room i was like any like the whole country i was yeah. super stressed out and concerned and scared and freaked out and and I, I walked out of there feeling like a little bit better why was that the answer you know in yoga we go into our body and we put ourselves in uncomfortable positions mm-hmm. intentionally and we then learn to breathe into it and to quiet that sort of rambunctious monkey of our mind but i guess i want to back up a second and you know you're yeah. you're reeling from the worst terrorist yeah. attack on american soil yeah. and your first thought is to go to a yoga class well i don't know if it was really my first thought yeah. i think it was just you, happened to be you there. wound up there. yeah okay. wound up you were there. walking yeah. down the yeah. street and yeah. you literally yeah. walked past that place yeah. and you're like maybe this will yeah yeah it could have been a bar you yeah, it could have been a bar. <laughs> i felt different when i left and so i started practicing yoga every day on tour and i'd go to a different yoga studio and and i would feel better and I felt better in my body. You know, I'm 52 now, and I still want to do all the things that I did then, you know, when I was 25. I yeah. still want to, like, jump around on stage and get in the audience and snowboard and, you know, surf and do all these things that are physical. And I can still do them, but my body doesn't recover in mm. the same way it used to. And yoga has helped me with my body, 
on tour, but mainly it's helped me to to be able to find that sense of I don't have to go to a place of panic every time in every situation that I'm able to breathe through things and be able to have a, a collecting feeling within myself so that I can like be observant of all these things that I've collected. What does this thought mean? And what does this feeling mean? Rather than just being reactive to everything. Do you practice meditation as well? I mean, that sounds like there's a very meditative yeah. aspect. You know, at the end of every practice, we, we meditate. And at mm. the start of every practice we do, I don't do like sit still for two hours meditation, yeah. but I, I do, you know, it's part of our yoga practice. So. This idea of mindfulness, has that impacted your yeah. creative side? Yeah, totally. You know, every I, I approach everything in a more mindful way. I don't just go into a room and think, oh, let's just write a random song about yeah. whatever, just because I think it might be a hit. I go in there with intention and I think what's happening in my life that I really want to express, what's happening in the world that I think I'm in touch with and, and that other people can resonate with, and how can I best you know, find a way to do it. And and then as a as a musician too, in order to keep it going for thirty years, you have to be a business person too. Mm-hmm. And so you have to be doing all that creative stuff with I don't know what's left brain, right brain, whatever. But yeah. you've got to compartmentalize like here's my creative side. Now here's like how we keep the wheels turning. Here's how we keep everybody's rent paid. Here's how put our kids to college and then to diversify. So I, I opened a yoga hotel in Bali. So I own a boutique hotel and, and, um, and so it's a, it's a great place to mix both those things. I go there and I play acoustic shows and we do yoga retreats there that go on all throughout the year. And I go out there a couple of weeks of the year and practice and teach as a band member, you know, as, as part of a touring family business, yeah. you, you're, you have ups and downs. Some years are super successful, some years aren't. And because of external consequences, your name really got put out there. So yeah. it's you yeah. and the band. And, and because of that, and just because of being a front man, everything kind of falls at your feet. Yeah. My first two bands were like straight up five guys yeah. in a band. Everybody has equal say. Collective. And they, and socialist they, punk. They, yeah. yeah. And, they, and, they, and they, they flamed out super sure. quickly, you know. Yeah. So when I started Spearhead, it was like I'm gonna go in the studio and make these recordings, and then I'll figure out who's gonna be in the band after, and I'll go out on the road. And like I mentioned, Carl Young has been with me for 25 years since the start, and um, we have our roles that we play. And Carl's role is kind of like the musical director of the band. You know, I write the songs and I sing the songs, but it's a you know there, there's a collaboration, yeah. but we, everybody knows their role, and so we've got you know you've got your Michael Jordan, your Dennis Rodman, mm. and you've got your Steph Curry, and yeah. you've got your Phil Jackson, and everybody does their thing. You need to have someone with a clear vision. Yeah, you got to have that clear vision. Would you say you're happy? I, I'm super happy right now. I, I feel like I have a deeper understanding of who I am, you know, and and that makes the difference, you know. And, it's and, interesting you have to couch that as right now. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, yeah. I mean, know. there's been times for sure before, and who knows what's going to happen in the future. But I always want to be at my growing edge, and sometimes that hurts. Mm. You know? And you know, especially in marriage, it's like for whatever reason, all of us choose the exact person who knows the exact buttons to push. Yeah. You know, like this person if, could see if I've got the red and yellow button that yeah. needs to be pushed, she's got the green and blue button that yeah. needs to be pushed. And then you end up pushing those buttons and, and then you've got to figure out like, how do we navigate that? How do I heal from whatever it was that was the trauma of growing up in whatever situation you were in that has now led you to be like oil and vinegar in this relationship? It's crazy that we're still processing that. Yeah. Yeah, it is all the life you've led and there's yeah. still residual there's stuff still, that you're there's uncovering. There's still that, you know? And I think that that's, sometimes I sit there and I, I'm like, 
God, I really admire my friends who still live in the same town and they just get up and they watch football on Sunday morning all day and they drink beer, then they go to work on Monday and they, they forget about everything and they just move on. Sometimes I admire that sort of like, God, I wish I could be that person who just felt a sense of peace and just watching football and drinking beer and going to work. But I'm not that guy, you know, and I never really have been. And it's led me to be tortured at times, you know, self-inflicted torture. But I'm also some, uh, I'm, I feel like I've also developed like a sense of self-awareness that has led me to be happy now. What's the source of that torture is just not being fulfilled the way you'd like to be? I think that's like, like part of it is a sense of fulfillment. Part of it is like growing up in a family where I never really felt like I was completely loved and I never, and I was given up by my parents at birth. And I've always felt that like I was an unwanted kid, a castaway, you know? And, and so I've always felt that longing for love. And I think that that's, you know, when you're asking about musicians and artists, I feel like that's part of it. To be an artist is to want to have people go, wow, I love your painting. It fills you up with that sense that you didn't have when you were growing up. A lot of creative people will tell you, a lot of musicians will tell you, yeah, well, I'm not, I'm not going after the hit, but yeah. there is yeah, more well, fulfillment in having yeah, a lot yeah, more people listen yeah, to your music. Yeah. When I, we toured with Bono and, and when I was in my band, the second band, Disposable Heroes of Hypocrisy, we opened for you too. And one day Bono said to me, he goes, you know, Michael, I'm so insecure that I need 70,000 people a night to tell me how much they love me. And that's it. And that's, I, I completely resonate with yeah. that feeling. And I think artists do is that you want that appreciation. And then when you're an artist who's trying to address social issues, it, it just gets in the way of that because for every person that agrees with you, then you've half the people who don't, you know? And so then how do you write songs that can, can do both those things, which can bring people together, you know, and help people feel things in a way that aren't just polarizing. Of the yoga, the hotel, the yeah. music, the albums, the playing live, what is the most fulfilling mm. part? I think the most fulfilling part is, so in the last five years, I've been working on this film and it just came out the same day as this album mm. came out. And we, you know, you can write a song in the morning on your guitar and you can walk out onto a street corner or into Madison Square Garden, you can play it. When you make a film, it's like it's a collaborative process. You can't, it's impossible to do it by yourself. And you, so you have all these people who are involved in it and you work for years and years and years to, to put it out. But regardless of however you get there, it's still the same feeling of seeing whatever you do touches somebody in a way that's profound and then it becomes meaningful for them and that's the satisfaction for me it's like you know i, sh I show my film and i see and there's pe people in the theater are crying and there's tears up and i see them resonating with what's happening on the screen and the feeling that's there and it's the same thing when you write a song but i, I think at the end of the day you know like the greatest satisfaction for me is not to be defined by one thing like i don't want to just be a musician i want to be filmed. i'd rather be known as like as a father and a husband and entrepreneur and someone who loves to be in the water. And, you know, those are the things that, that really give me a sense of like completion beyond just playing music for people. There you go. That was Michael Franti. His new record, Stay Human, Volume 2, is out now. That is the soundtrack to the documentary that he directed, also called Stay Human. Thanks to him for taking the time to do that. He's somebody I've been wanting to talk to for a very long time. Very much enjoyed the conversation. Thanks to Joe and the folks at Saxco for recommending and setting up that conversation. Thanks to you guys, as always, for listening to the program. If you like the show, there are so many ways to support us. You can write and review us on iTunes, Google Podcasts, 
Spotify apparently getting very into the podcast game these days. We have a YouTube page as well, like us on Facebook. If you have any feedback, it's rolcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Tumblr, that's rolcast.tumblr.com. That is the first and best place to get your RIYL related information. And that's about all we got for this week, so stick around because we are going to be back just about this time next week with another episode of RIYL.